from the High Center Studios, where we have to study a war at least some of the time. Here in Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Wave Improvement Leads Home Podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. Now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Welcome, everyone, to episode 57 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. We're glad that you have joined us. Our guest today is Sarah Meyer. She is a public historian. She's a former museum director and a historian of women, gender, and war. And she's working on a fascinating book on women Air Force service pilots or the WASP program during World War II. Uh, I should also add that Sarah is my new colleague in the history department here at Messiah College, and she's been on the job here in Mechanicsburg now. I guess it's been about two months uh, since September, uh, and we're really happy to have her. Uh, This semester, she's teaching a course on U.S. women's history and a first-year writing seminar on gender, genocide, and human rights, uh, which plays into some of her scholarly interests as well. Um, Down the road, Sarah will be teaching courses in public history, oral history, and military history, uh, in addition to the second half of the United States survey. So she is a rising star in the field of military history, and I think you're going to find this to be a very informative and entertaining uh, interview. But before we get to Sarah, let me tell you how you can connect with our work here. Uh, As many of you know, the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Uh, When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is brought to you through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi, Richard Green, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, Margaret Graves, and Gretchen Adams. And as always, thanks to Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right fit for your future. We are a listener supported podcast and we keep this thing going by your generous financial donation. So once again, thank you. Uh, If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please head over to thewayofimprovement.com and click support or go directly to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thewayofimprovement. And of course, the best way to spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend or you can follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast on Twitter and on Facebook. If you like an episode, give us a share or retweet and consider a positive review on iTunes and Stitcher. I'm not a trained military historian, and I've never taken a course on the subject. I've never written a paper on the subject in graduate school. But war pervades every dimension of society, and anyone who writes or teaches history must come to grips with it. My first book, for example, told the story of a Revolutionary War chaplain named Philip Vickers Fithian, who served in the Long Island and Manhattan theaters in the summer and fall of 1776. In order to tell Fithian's story... I needed to educate myself in 18th century military history. And then for my book on the American Bible Society, I had to learn something about the everyday lives of Civil War soldiers, as well as the soldiers who fought in World War I, World War II, uh, Korea, Vietnam, all the way up to the Persian Gulf conflict. And my current book project, which is a history of the American Revolution in New Jersey, has forced me to take probably my deepest dive yet into military history. Uh, It's challenged me to think deeply about how war influenced uh, one early American agricultural society in the mid-Atlantic in the colonial and revolutionary era. Of course, anyone who teaches American history cannot avoid war. In my colonial America class, we spend time on Indian wars and the imperial wars for empire between England and France. My course on the American Revolution devotes several weeks to battles, engagements, and the general course of the war. I am not a Civil War historian, but since I teach at a small liberal arts college where I'm responsible for everything in American history prior to 1865, I have taught a course on the Civil War. While I know I don't spend as much time on troop movements as some of my students might like, I have learned a thing or two about mid-19th century warfare and over the years have even developed an adequate introductory tour of nearby Gettysburg. 
Traditional military history, the story of troop movements and weaponry and generals, has fallen largely out of favor among academic historians. Even as it remains widespread among white middle-aged men who read popular history books about wars, battles, and weapons. You know, the kind of books that they get from their kids on Father's Day. But for many academic historians working in military history today, the tanks, the artillery fire, and the heroism has given way to what was once called the new social history, an approach to the past that focuses on the experiences of ordinary people, everyday life, race, class, gender. As our guest Sarah Myers reminds us, military history is more vibrant than ever in the academy. Historians in the field are writing thought-provoking books on African-American and women soldiers, the experience of the home front, the role of veterans, the influence of war on every dimension of life, including the family, religion, gender roles, politics, and local communities. The study of war has not disappeared. It is just not your father's military history. Sarah Myers is assistant professor of history at Messiah College in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. She received her Ph.D. in American history at Texas Tech University. And prior to coming to Messiah, taught history at St. Francis University in Loretto, Pennsylvania, where she also served as the director, founder and creator of the Kern Family World War II Museum. Myers is a historian of U.S. women's and gender history, public history, oral history, human rights, veteran studies, aviation, and war and society. Her current book project is titled A Weapon Waiting to Be Used, The Women Air Force Service Pilots of World War II. So welcome to the uh, program, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. So you are an expert on the Women Air Force Service Pilots, or the WASPs of World War II. Tell us a little bit about the WASPs. Who were they? Yeah, so this was a military program that was considered to be an experiment, is how it was described by the Army Air Force, as it was called at the time. There were women's units in all military branches, so the Coast Guard, Marines, Navy, Army, etc., all had women's units that they had formed that were segregated units of women. And for the Army Air Force, theirs was titled the WASP. And it was a program that required women to have a certain number of flying hours before they ended. But then once accepted, they received the same basic and instrumental training as male pilots, with the exception of some very specific combat maneuvers and things like that. And then once they completed training, they were stationed at bases around the continental United States and performed all kinds of work. So they ferried planes from factories when they were produced to military bases so that then male pilots could take them overseas. They did some really crazy work that was called target towing, which is where there is a target attached by cables to the back of your plane. And the pilots would fly the same pattern repeatedly in the air. And then male cadets on the ground would practice anti-aircraft artillery and would shoot at the targets. And then they also had some maneuvers that they would do with combat pilots who were in training where they also would try to um, hit those targets that the women were towing. And then the, another thing that they did was they used to fly like demonstrations to show how certain planes were um, flyable, basically, and considered safe. The famous one they did that with was the B-29. And so Paul Tibbetts, who was the pilot that dropped the original bomb um, on Hiroshima, um, mm. you know, towards the end of the war, he actually kind of came up with this idea in coordination with the Army Air Force, since the B-29 was considered to be like unsafe for pilots to fly because there were some fires in the engines and male pilots started to refuse to fly it. He decided that if he had women fly the planes um, onto military bases, that then male pilots would deem them safe and it would kind of boost morale. Interesting. And so that was like what they did. So, so it's, it's the, I call them the wasps. It's the wasp 
Yes. That's the official. That's a, well, so some people in their writings have called them the wasps, but yeah. I use wasp because it was the way that the Army Air Force described them in all their memos and the way they originally okay. like, wrote the name of the program. So it goes the wasp. Yeah, wasp. but it's confusing. Yeah. yeah, but it's confusing. So okay. why would, um, you touched on this a little bit, but why would the United States Air Force want to create such a program? Like, what are the kind of deep roots of this? Was there some kind of, you know, is this kind of a similar to kind of a Rosie the Riveter type thing where we want to, you know, how, who, how was this, how did this come about? Like, what were the sort of ideas behind it to sort of, because it surprises me mm-hmm. that in the 1940s, the, the United States would want women flying planes. Yeah. So there were actually, it's kind of interesting because there was this precursor to any ideas of women flying for the Mm. military in 1939. So as the war was starting in Europe, uh, FDR created this civilian pilot training program that was basically through, it was a civilian um, organization that kind of worked in coordination with the military. Mm -hmm. And they trained one woman for every 10 men and gave them free flying lessons and training. And the thought was that eventually if, you know, we're trying to be isolationist, but eventually if we go to war, mm-hmm. we'll have this, you know, a number of pilots that are already trained that we can then, you know, have kind of a leg up, um, which is interesting because this is 1939. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 it's, so it's, it almost seems like, am I, am I hearing you right? That this is like we're just tapping into like a, the larger population. That's there's yeah. no kind of. It's just like we need more pilots and women. There's an untapped. So there was no kind of attempt like for equity or we need to get more women involved. It was just the sort of practical solution. It it was partially a practical solution. It was also practically so. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt, who was mm-hmm. a campaigner for all kinds of human and civil rights, she was. Um, you know, politically associated with a really famous female pilot at the time, whose name now has largely been forgotten, Mm -hmm. but her name was Jacqueline Cochran. Mm -hmm. Um, And Jacqueline Cochran was married to this billionaire who had a lot of like political connections. And she had had conversations with Eleanor Roosevelt about like, Hey, we should incorporate female pilots. But at the time the military and, you know, the office of the presidency were not interested in women pilots officially as being a part of the military it was kind of the stereotype where you're like, we don't want to use our women in combat because maybe we'll seem like weaker to the enemy, mm-hmm. kind of just the arguments that have been used. Yeah. And so that kind of like planted the seeds, but it's still interesting because yeah, the civilian organization was like, we should also train, you know, a certain number of women. Yeah. So, yeah interesting. Um, so let's talk about, you know, you and your work on this subject. How did you get involved or how did you get interested in, uh, in this subject, I mean, you're, you're, it was during your PhD program. Um, you know, what, what kind of attracted you to this? Do you have like a military background in your family? I mean, what drew you to these people? Yeah. To the wasp? So I was originally, I learned about it during grad school when I was working on my master's and I heard about this program and I just thought it was really interesting concept that of all the women's units during world war two, who served, these are the only women that were deemed civilian for the duration of the war, whereas the other units all received Mm -hmm. military status because of congressional bills. And so I was really intrigued by this concept. And once I decided that, you know, I wanted to write a master's thesis on this, I was really desperately trying to find people to interview. Mm -hmm. It was, it was kind of hard to get in with the women because there were such a small number that were, you know, still alive at this point. This is like the late two thousands. And so I eventually, just by chance, was on a flight from Texas to London, and I didn't even talk to the person that I was sitting by for the duration of my flight, but as I was getting off the plane, we, you know, picked up some small talk Mm -hmm. of whatever, and long story short, he told me, oh, wow, that's really interesting. Um, My grandma is actually a wasp and she lives in Indiana. Wow. And I was like, oh, wow, would I be able to interview her? And he was like, you know, yeah, just send me your contact info and I'll send it to her. And she, like, for the duration of her life, like after I interviewed her, because she was my first interview, Mm -hmm. she would tell everybody, 
this is Sarah. She's the one <laughs> who my grandson met on a plane. And she's just so excited by the yeah. aviation connection. So, so, yeah. so this, this led one thing led to another and she yeah. kind of connected you with the other, yeah. other so members of the Wasp. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then, so this is for your master's thesis. Yeah. And then, um, like, do you, did you come at this when you were looking for a topic? Did you come at this? Like you weren't looking for a military history per se, or were you, or were you coming at this as sort of a women's historian? Yeah, I was coming at it as a women's historian yeah. and it actually took me a really long time to even see myself as a military historian. Cause I just saw this story as a natural extension of what I was already doing with women's history. Mm-hmm. And especially even just like early career while I was, you know, working on my PhD work and presenting at military history conferences, it took me a while still to embrace the title of military historian yeah. because yeah. I, there was just this stereotype still in the American public about what yeah. a military historian is yeah. and what military history is. And it took me a little while to get past like, Oh, military history encompasses anything mm-hmm. related to the military or to how people are experiencing war. And it's more than yeah. just like the traditional. Yeah. We'll talk more about that here in a few minutes, but I'm just curious now. Um, and I probably asked you this at some point, but did you, but just for our listeners, do you define yourself? Do you feel comfortable defining yourself as a military historian? I mean, do you, do you embrace the label? I do. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yes. Good. Um, tell me a little bit. So st- sticking with this, this for a second, tell me a little bit about then how you went about your research. Cause this is very interesting too. Cause this was not a, your, your, your work is, is based of course on documents, like all historians, most historians, but also on, um, you know, you've done some, you some other methodologies, right? Which, yeah. you know, would make sense when you're talking about people who are still living. So tell us a little bit about how you did your research for this project. Yeah. So I um, had talked, you know, about how I wanted to interview these women specifically, because mm-hmm. I, w- I wanted to ask them questions that I hadn't been able to find answers to in mm-hmm. the official Air Force records. I'd looked at a lot of what had been written about the program with the air force records. I'd also looked at like the wasp director, Jacqueline Cochran, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this female pilot who ended up directing the program. I looked at her records, but there were still a lot of questions that I had unanswered. Um, I had read some memoirs and things like that too. And I also had looked at like scrapbooks and photographs, mm-hmm. but um, the place where I actually got my PhD work at Texas tech is two hours from where these women pilots trained during oh, the war. Cool. Yeah. And so they would have yearly reunions there. Mm-hmm. And so I got oral history training at um, a UC Berkeley summer program. And then this is when I started like interviewing these women. Yeah, And it was fantastic because I got to interview them as individuals, but then I also got to interview them in groups when oh, they're cool. reminiscing with each other yeah. and also when they're with their kids. So their mm. kids would, often remind them, Hey mom, remember how you told me that yeah. story? And then yeah. the mom yeah. would be like, Oh yeah. And that would kind of trigger memories. So, yeah. So, um, so like we said, you, you met this woman on the plane, one thing led to another. Um, how many, do you know how many sort of women who were in the WASP program are still alive and how many you've been able to interview? I think that they're probably around a hundred right okay. now. There, a couple of years ago, that somebody gave the number around like 180 some, like the okay. place basically where they have the yeah. reunions was because they get a lot of, you know, feedback mm-hmm. from RCPs and things like that. Um, I would say now, though, probably 100. And the reason is because of the age that they had to be for the program originally. Okay. And since okay. the program lasted from 1942 to 1944, the youngest they can be right now is very late 90s. Okay. And so it... The okay. numbers are much less yeah, during the yeah. war for perspective. Um, they're around like a little, over, a little under 1100 of them. Oh, wow. So okay. there weren't really a okay. large number to start yeah. with. Yeah. But yeah. So how have they responded to your, like, are they open to talking? I mean, you know, tell, tell, tell me a little bit about sort of what it's like interviewing one of these veterans. You, know, you hear stories about, World War II veterans who don't like to talk or they're, you know, they don't like to share things. Now, most of these women didn't see heavy combat, right? But, but for those of you, for those of our listeners who might be like an aspiring oral historian or something, or wants, even just wants to interview people in their, in their town, like what was, how did you win their trust? How did you, you know, how did that 
sort of the stuff you don't kind of learn as much in, in graduate school? You know, how did that all go? I'm just curious. Yeah, I have lots of thoughts about this because I'm really passionate about oral history. Yeah. And if you live somewhere that you, you know, like even if it's just members of your family or veterans or whomever, um, I highly encourage you to check out the Library of Congress. They have some basics kind of getting into this and mm -hmm. how to record interviews. And you can actually donate yours to them and then they can yeah. have a more permanent record. But um, I at first built rapport kind of just by that early, you know, woman pilot that I met, but then also just through that network, I would kind of tell the women things that I knew about the program and conversations mm -hmm. that I had with them just mm -hmm. to kind of give them an understanding that like, you don't have to repeat every, you know, yeah, like the yeah. basics to me, like we can dive in and right. um, you can give me specifics. And I know kind of the language of the time period and the language of aviation from the time period. And sure. I feel like that helped build rapport a lot and just being there in person and meeting their families and things like that. Um, but there's also, you know, just the dynamics of there's always, you know, gender, race, whatever dynamics when you're interviewing right, people. Right. So for them, um, you know, I am younger than them. And so that was kind of an added dynamic that a lot of them saw me as like, you know, a granddaughter type right, figure. Right. So whenever I would, you know, try to ask them questions about sexuality or dating relationships, I, always kind of analyze the answers that they gave me through that lens sure. of recognizing that. But then also, so no, the women were not in combat. The yeah. only like internationally during world war two, the only women who were in combat were in um, Russia. Okay. And so in the U S they were stationed in the continental United States. 38 of them did die during the course of the war because it was just dangerous mm -hmm. to be in aviation mm -hmm. at the time for various reasons. And so because they weren't in combat and that's kind of the expectation that a lot of people even in the American public have is like, oh, if I wasn't in combat as a veteran, I maybe don't have as exciting of a story to offer right. or I maybe, you know, whatever. And so the women were interested in telling me about how much they loved flying and really focusing on aviation and how they had wanted careers in aviation. But sometimes it took a little convincing to get them to talk about other aspects of the program because they didn't really see it as um, something that was like special or unique or that they yeah. had a history to offer, which I've actually found that with a lot of veterans yeah. in general, even yeah. if they had been in combat, sometimes you just have to gently remind people that they all yeah. have a story to share. Yeah. And that, that says something I think for the historian in and of itself, right? Why, why do you not think mm -hmm. this is important? Right. Right. So let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, back to the kind of WASP uh, group of women here. Um, obviously, you know, these women faced some degree of gender discrimination, discrimination against the uh, uh, from from the sort of masculine male dominated United States Army. Um, tell me a little bit about this. You know, what were they up against here? Um, you know, what was you know, what was the. Uh, the sort of dominant sort of climate of the military at the time and how did they navigate that? This has been one of the most interesting things that I've studied and analyzed because they are in a, you know, male dominated field, just being in aviation, sure. but also in the military. But unlike the other women's units during World War II, these women are only performing non-traditional work. Whereas in the other branches, women are performing roughly like 90% of the women are doing what's considered to be traditional in some mm -hmm. way for women, even mm -hmm. though being in the military was um, new and controversial at the time. And so they're performing this, you know, non-traditional work often, especially when they're in their assignments on military bases, they're the only woman on base yeah. or there's very few women on bases. And they, they talk about, so you have to like think about the context of the time period and the fact that they don't always have you know, during World War II in the sources that you look at, they don't always have the language to quite explain what's happening. Right. But in memoirs, letters, uh, it, you know, oral history interviews years later, they do talk about things in the context of using the word discrimination, although they're very hesitant even now to talk about it too boldly. Uh, I think a part of that is because during the war, the Air Force was really concerned about anything controversial happening mm -hmm. with the program that would mm -hmm. shut it down. Um, there was like a slander campaign with the women's army corps and they didn't want anything like that. And so 
when things happened that there were instances of sabotage towards these women, there are instances of sabotage towards male pilots as well, actually Mm -hmm. from pro German sympathizers and things like that. But when things like that happened or discrimination in terms of their training, women have stories about how they were treated during training by male instructors who were resentful of their presence. Where at the same time, they also talk about male instructors who were really impressed by them and just easily Mm. accepted them. And so you kind of just get a mixed bag of reactions, but the discriminatory ones are the ones that they hid during the war because they were instructed that like, don't rock the boat. We don't want to do anything that will, you know, shut down this program. And so women didn't really like report things happening, although they talk about it years later and they end up fighting for military status in the late 1960s through the 1970s. And during that time, a lot of them like use the language of women's liberation to say like, we feel like what we experienced was discrimination. We feel like it was male chauvinism, but we don't consider ourselves to be like feminists in the women's liberation. Okay. So, So, um, was there any kind of, so, you know, there's, there's particular things that they would have talked about, right? Particular moments where they felt discriminated against. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about the kind of, um, kind of structural issues. I don't know if that's the best word, right? But what was it that, you know, obviously these women are allowed to fly planes, but they're not allowed to fly planes in combat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> or, you know, why? I mean, what, you know, these kind of larger assumptions about uh, gender roles in the military that that may have today we might see as kind of more structurally discriminatory discriminatory than kind of, you know, some issue incident that happened on the base or something like that. Yeah. So they actually so the commanding this kind of goes back to an earlier question you asked, yeah. too, actually, there was um, the commanding. Air Force, Army Air Force General at the time was General Hap Arnold. Um, he went, gave, gave this famous, well, famous in the time period for the WASP, um, 1944 speech, mm-hmm. where he said that the, he, you know, when he first thought about integrating women into the Air Force, he was really hesitant. Mm-hmm. He waited even until 1942 to do this because he just really didn't think that women had the upper body strength that was required at the time to fly these large military planes. Yeah. And he also just didn't really see the need for them until we had casualties overseas. Mm -hmm. And so he talks about his surprise at the women's success. And this is like something that's not just limited to him, but to other officers who are on these bases interacting with women. The women found that basically they kind of had to demonstrate their skills before they were accepted, if Uh they were accepted at all. Am I hearing you correctly that the the Air Force kind of rejected this idea that women had weak bodies like over time or how did that play out? Yeah. They couldn't handle the plane or. So the, the air force rejected the idea at first based on weak bodies, but also on the basis of there were some fears about women's emotional stability. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's all sorts of like interesting things that I look at with regards to like um, menstrual cycles and things like mm-hmm. that because they're like, oh, well, maybe they'll have an emotional breakdown while they're flying the yeah, plane yeah. and things like that. And they also just didn't know that women, it, the same actually was true of the Tuskegee Airmen, that they didn't know if women had the emotional fortitude to handle stressful flying conditions. And so for the Tuskegee Airmen, that extended to uh, not just training, but also combat specifically, mm-hmm. right? But for these women pilots, it's just limited to issues of strength and, you know, emotional stability. Um, But yeah, they, they prove that they can successfully handle and do these things. But the idea of women in combat, especially when you read like Army Air Force memos about this and, you know, letters between officers and things like that, is just that it's something they don't even want to consider. Right there, it's already like a bold enough step to have women serving within the continental United States. And the idea of women serving in combat just feels like too much for the American public to handle in terms Mm -hmm. of morale, but also just too much in the sense that they're not sure that women can successfully do this. 
Yeah, I didn't, Sarah, I didn't ask you this question on the prepared questions, but I think you can probably easily talk about it. So I'm thinking about, you know, of what gave these women, you know, scholars like to talk about this term kind of like agency or power, right? And I think you you make the argument, if I remember correctly, that um, the the air, the space, right, which was a largely masculine space, these women are kind of, I hope I get the verb right here, right? You know, they're they're invading this space or they're 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 finding power in a masculine space. You know, I always found that really interesting as I've looked at your work. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I first came across this idea when I was reading early female aviator descriptions in the 1910s, 1920s of how they viewed the space, like literally of flying at certain altitudes as liberating. Mm -hmm. And they talked about how they saw a future for women's equality in American society through, you know, flying and kind of having a career outside the constraints of what you normally could in American society. And then going from there, I had noticed in interviews that I was, you know, conducting and that I read and also just in other memoirs and sources like that, that the women pilots like these WASP talked about how the like post-war aviation world was really sad for them because they could no longer fly these large military aircraft. Mm -hmm. And they talk about the experience of what it's like because military aircraft are the ones that are capable of flying at higher altitudes than civilian aircraft. And they're also a lot more powerful, especially in this time period when you can actually feel the power of the plane as you're flying it instead of it being automated like Mm -hmm. it is now. And so they talk about how they just see this, like these spaces in high altitudes as just completely um, freeing and also empowering. Mm. And like they have, you know, access to something that not a lot of people have access to. And it's really, really um, just like fascinating to me how they describe that difference because after the war, when, well, actually after the program ends in December, 1944, women are not allowed to fly military aircraft again until training starts in the late 1960s, early 1970s. And so it's a really long time before they can do that. They also then are cut off from jet aviation which means that they're then cut off from space aviation. And so women are literally, you know, and especially because like commercial aviations and airlines are not hiring them for these positions. It literally becomes spaces that are only available to men in the post-war period. And just how, you know, much that like limits women in terms of like aviation careers, but also just as a concept, it's interesting like who has access to yeah. So so is it fair to say like in the in aviation history, right? Mm-hmm. Um this WASP program is kind of a little bit of a blip on the map. And then it kind of goes back to yes. um, you know, a male dominated field. Why does the program end in, in December nineteen forty four? So Congress had this was the last bill to go before Congress to give military status to a women's unit Mm -hmm. at the same time. There are a couple of things that are happening in that moment. So it's going before Congress in the summer, fall 1944, the civilian pilot training program that had started in 1939, Mm -hmm. it had a lot of male civilian instructors who were pilots, you know, teaching, Mm -hmm. you know, flying from 1939 through 1944. The program was shut down because of some, disagreements between basically the military and the civilian organization that have been running these programs. And so they shut the program down. And then that meant that these male instructors were eligible for the draft because before this, they'd been exempt. Now, a lot of these male instructors did not qualify to be military pilots, Mm -hmm. ironically, even though they were training them because of different um, physical things, their age, et cetera. But the civilian pilot training program instructors started this campaign with Congress and said, these women are taking jobs from men. Mm-hmm. And this is in a time where, you know, Americans are yeah. already concerned and trying to prioritize, sure. you know, future veterans and things like that. And so they tell Congress like, hey, these women are taking our jobs, even though for the most part, that wasn't true. There are some WASP who are in instructor positions that they could have held, but mm-hmm. not in like a military capacity. And so they say that then you have like 
several um, journalists. A, a really famous one during the time period was Drew Pearson, mm-hmm. and he had this column where he talks about the Wasp as taking jobs from men. There was also this atrocious Hollywood film that came out at the same time in movie theaters. It's Ladies of Courage. Okay, this is in the 40s. Yeah, this okay. is in 1944, actually. Okay. And the interesting thing was the Wasp had actually flown some of the planes that were used in that film to the Hollywood sets. Oh, really? And the Air Force had provided some advisors for it. But the whole thing, which was a portrayal of female pilots in the military mm-hmm. during World War II, and, you know, coming out in 1944 in theaters, was a train wreck. Like, the Wasp yeah. who saw it, I eventually was able to track down a copy of it. It was yeah. very difficult. Yeah. But the Wasp who saw it were horrified because it tells the story of these women pilots flying for the military that are more concerned with their hair yeah, and yeah. dating than they are with, right, you right. know, actually military flying, which the Wasp were like, that's obviously not a reflection of right, what we did. Right. But then in Congress in these debates, top military brass, like the, you know, commanding general of the Army Air Force, um, even Secretary of War, Henry Simpson, like all these people come and present testimony before Congress and say, these women, we've paid a lot of money to train them, but also they're highly qualified Civilian pilot training program, mm-hmm. pilot instructors are not qualified for these positions. So please give these women military status. And Congress told, chose to privilege the voices of those civilian instructors over uh, military. Interesting. Uh, yeah, voices. And the women were probably better pilots. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah, they had they, very specialized training. They had right, gone to right. school to, you know, yeah. learn these different aircraft. And yeah. Did, um, now you mentioned it before about, um, you know, this kind of period then where women are not permitted in planes in the military, but also commercial. Did any of these women become sort of commercial pilots? Did they did they fly again? They really wanted to be commercial pilots. Yeah. But for the next couple of decades, any women that were like applying for this, they said that they were given, oh, hey, we're not ready. Like the American public's not ready for female pilots. Yeah. So here's a flight attendant application, oh, which wow. that's not what they were looking for at all. So they told you this. Yeah. yeah. And so they, there are some women who continue to fly in air shows because mm-hmm. they're financially you okay. know, privileged. Um, there are some women who have random careers like crop dusting okay. or flying. Okay. So there are some women actually that fly some cargo planes for civilian companies like into South America okay. and stuff okay. like that. But it's very few and far between yeah. Yeah. because of how much, it, even now, if you try to get a pilot's license, right. it's crazy expensive. Yeah. So yeah. it was expensive to maintain your license and it was expensive to own planes. And okay. so a lot of them didn't have access. Yeah. 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 Let's fast forward this story as you tell it. Um, your, your forthcoming book, which is, this is really interesting to me. Um, you're also kind of intersecting with something I've learned from you and reading your your some of your stuff, uh, sort of veteran studies, right? There's a thing, yeah, people, yeah. Or veteran studies, right? It's called. But but talk about then. I think we're moving now into the '60s and seven, maybe the '70s, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the wasps, you argue, the women who are in part of this program uh, have this interesting. To me, it's interesting, at least this kind of battle over the meaning of the term veteran, right? And whether or not as women, they deserve that title. Just unpack that for me. You know, how were the wasps involved in this debate over the kind of gendered meaning of this term veteran? Yeah. So when I was first looking at this history and before I had read congressional records, I had gone into it. Just kind of assuming that since it's decades after World War II, mm-hmm. and even now there's, you know, ideas of this greatest generation and veterans from the World War II era. And so I had just assumed that it would be a pretty easy bill to pass through Congress and that they would just be like, oh, yeah, you know, of course they had military training because we have all the records. And obviously, like, they should have been granted military status, but yeah. it came during a political time. You say a bill passed through Congress. You mean a bill yeah. to make them... Give them veteran status. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. So in 1944, the bill that was supposed to give them veteran status did not pass. So when they have another bill brought before Congress in the 19, well, there's one that tried in the 1960s, but in the 1970s, mm-hmm. they, um, I had thought that this, you know, military status bill would just go through really easily. Mm-hmm. Instead, what happens is it becomes a, you know, national conversation about who qualifies as a veteran 
And there were some congressional representatives who speak out and say, like, if we give these specific women, like, you know, these former WASP military status, well, then that's just going to open, you know, a Pandora's box of Mm -hmm. who else is going to try to get veteran status. Right. And so we need to protect the integrity of this title and we can't just be giving it out to anyone is essentially, you know, a rewording of what they're saying. Right. And so the WASP go around to like local VFWs, local American Mm -hmm. legions. They even, there's a WASP who I just love the story. She goes to a star Wars premiere out in California Uh And waits while all the people are waiting in line for the film because, you know, they've all lined up in advance Mm -hmm. of this showing. She like has them sign a petition asking Mm. for the bill and, you know, gets a lot of, you know, Star Wars fans, signatures and things. So they kind of, you know, work their network that way. A lot of those local groups support the women, um, probably partially because of personal connections and also just like general networking and things like that. But then on the national level, the National um, Veterans Administration, the uh, BFW Veterans for Foreign Wars, the American Legion, et cetera, on the national level, those do not support the WASP bill. Yeah. Um, they argue that they literally pull out in their testimony before Congress, pull out the dictionary and give the Webster's definition of yeah. the term veteran, which is just really fascinating what people do, you know, yeah, yeah. testimony. So they pull out the definition of the term veteran which according to that definition, the wasp fit, but yeah, yeah. but they then go on, you know, these tangents about how the veteran, they don't use this word specifically. They don't say the veteran is male, but they say he every time mm-hmm. they reference a veteran. Mm-hmm. So they're, you know, yeah. covertly saying like, oh, we really yeah. think a veteran's male. And then they tie combat experience with the term veteran, okay. which is fascinating because- for all of U.S. history, even through the present, the majority of people who are serving in the U.S. military do not serve in combat. Yeah, it's yeah. one of the misconceptions. A lot of people just assume if you're a veteran, you're, it's very likely you served in combat. But the majority of veterans, you have not served in combat. And so you have the situation where they're trying to tie it to combat to try to be like, this is why the women shouldn't get it. But the WASP are instead of directly confronting combat arguments, they're like, well, let us just show you our, you know, dog tags and Mm -hmm. evidence of our military service. They actually get an unlikely advocate who ends up helping them a lot. Just Senator Barry Goldwater, Mm. who has very specific opinions about women serving in combat. He's opposed. And then he also has very specific opinions about women in the service academies because it's around the same time that they're Mm -hmm. having those discussions. But for the WASP, he is pro this military status bill because he served alongside them at a military base in Delaware. And so he's like, well, obviously they're veterans because we were stationed at the same bases together and I saw what they did. And so he helps, you know, educate the WASP on how to like campaign Congress and helps like kind of in an advisory role for this Mm -hmm. campaign and Mm -hmm. getting the bills passed. But it's just fascinating that they're literally pulling out definitions and trying to. So what happens? So what happens is the bill ends up passing through Congress and the women get military status. Yeah. Interestingly enough on the exact same bill, the, there were women who had served in world war one with the army in the signal Corps. There were just like a little Mm -hmm. over 200 of them. They actually got military status on the same bill. And so they became officially the first women in the military rather than like women in World War II, which is okay, really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when they get military status, it seems like a nice little neat bow. Like, so in 1977, it's signed into law. But what happens is as they're, you know, approaching their local VAs, because a lot of them, you know, are now going to, they qualify for veteran or medical benefits. And a lot of them are going to, mm-hmm. um, you know, go to the local VAs and things right. like that. They encounter a lot of resistance to people who then reject their applications for this, which really? is really interesting. And so even through the 1980s, they're still constantly having to provide like an outrageous amount of paperwork to try to yeah. prove their yeah. military status and women like otherwise who served in the military and the other branches during World War II, the GI Bill applied for them. Yeah. So they, it's just yeah. a totally different situation. So this is something that's unique to the WASP. Yeah. 
not to women generally in terms of veteran status. So right. were other women getting je- veteran status in yes. the 70s? So during, like after, um, well, during World War II, the women who are serving in those military units get military status. So that means that they're officially considered military. So they get, you know, if they die during the war, they get military honors. Um, they get access to the GI Bill after the war for educational benefits, loans, health care, et cetera. And then women are officially integrated into the military in 1948. Okay. They just have limited and restricted roles. Okay. So even women can be in the Air Force because it becomes a branch after World War II, but they cannot fly military aircraft. It's kind of like yeah. the recent removal of combat exclusion. Women couldn't serve in combat, but then they also couldn't serve in certain roles like okay. pilots. Okay. We don't have much time left here, Sarah, but I have one sort of final question for you. And it goes back to something I asked you before about you being a military historian. Um, Real quick, um, you know, when I think about military history or when a lot, probably a lot of our listeners think about military history, they think about people who study generals and weapons and, you know, these kinds of things, wars and troop movements and that kind of stuff. Um, But how does your work and the work of others sort of broaden our understanding of military history? What do you say to that traditional, you know, middle-aged guy who likes to read, uh, you know, some military book that his kids got him for Father's Day, you know, or something (laughs) like that? Um, What what does military history look like now as as scholars are, are engaging it? And, you know, Obviously, your work is coming at it from a very different angle than traditionally the field has been, you know, understood. Yeah, I I would respond to that and say that I'm glad that you're reading in military history. And that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and that also the field has so much to offer in addition to that. Now, yeah. um, there's just there's still so many, you know, traditional military historians. But what I really like are histories that combine the traditional with some of these new elements like veteran studies, like how mm-hmm. do even, cause even now people look at, you know, female veterans from these current conflicts and how they sometimes do, but sometimes do not identify with the title veteran mm-hmm. and kind of complexities surrounding that. So veteran studies, there's also a lot of really cool stuff with um, sensory histories. Like there's a book called the smell of battle. It's about the civil war soldiers. Um, it's by Mark Smith. And yeah just like the senses, like how, what can you learn about battles based on the sensory ways that people experience it? There's also been just stuff on trauma studies. So moral injury and PTS and ways that we can kind of unpack that in eras where we didn't have those terms. Right. Um, you know, like there's all sorts of like soldiers heart and phrases that are given in the past. And then there's also a lot of stuff with healthcare and like disability studies and how veterans have tried to get access to those things. Even when under the law, they have them, they, there's still all these obstacles to getting proper healthcare Mm -hmm. through different ways. Mm -hmm. And there's several great historians that have published work on that. So it sounds like it's, it's a very rich and kind of vibrant, vibrant field, right. That you're working in. Good. We have been talking uh, with Sarah Myers. She is, Uh, currently working on a book project titled A Weapon Waiting to Be Used, The Women Air Force Service Pilots of World War II. Sarah, is there a way that if people want to learn more about you and your work, is there any place they can go, maybe like a social media or a website or something? Yeah, I have um, a website that's just my name. Um, It's Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, P-A-R-R-Y. Myers, M-Y-E-R-S, and it's just www.myname. Okay. And then I'm also on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Dr. like D-R, Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, Myers, M-Y-E-R-S. Good. So so if you want to follow her as she's writing the this uh, really interesting book, you can do that. Sarah, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. This was fun. Okay. Well, that was definitely something new for the podcast. I think uh, this was our first military history uh, episode, and I can't think of a better person to talk about military history than my new colleague, Sarah. Uh, Her book, I think, is going to make a splash. I was talking to her uh, on the way into the studio today. Uh, There has not been a historical treatment of these uh, women pilots in World War II 
Um, and I think Sarah's book is now going to become the definitive study uh, of the WASP uh, movement. And she's doing some really interesting work, I think, on this front. And I think uh, I think we should take seriously what she says about the current state of military history. Uh, again, this is not your father's military history anymore, folks. Uh, military historians, people who study war and society are interested in a whole new set of questions uh, in this day and age. And I think it's really going to expand uh, our understanding of um, war and armies and the effects of war on society. So thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Uh, head over to our Patreon site. Um, help us out if you can. Share this episode on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, we'll see you next time. And in the meantime, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice, so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at TWOILH Podcast. The podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Richard Green, Margaret Graves, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Sarah Myers. Our studio producer is Casey Lehman. I've been your producer, Drew Derling-Hermeling, and your host is John Fia.